You're listening to a podcast from City Tribe Media. We're an urban tribe that helps people who feel far from God to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference. For more fresh content, check City Tribe on YouTube, Instagram, or Facebook. Enjoy the message, and welcome to the tribe. Now here's Lee Wong. What's up, City Tribe? How y'all doing today? It's great to see you guys. It's great to see all of you city youth. My name is Lee. I am one of your city tribe teachers. Shout out to everybody watching in the video cafe, everybody joining us via the Facebook live feed, YouTube live feed, and everybody listening at a future date from the podcast. Glad everybody is participating as we continue this series. As Pastor Humby said, you're invited. Now, I've got a lot to cover today, so I'm not going to do a recap, but let me just encourage every single one of you, if you're visiting for the first time, or if maybe you're joining us after a long time, to go to our City Tribe Media to get caught up if this is your first time participating in this part of the series. So you can go to our YouTube page, or you can go to our Apple podcast, but we're going to get going right now. So we've been in a conversation about what it means to participate in Jesus's kingdom movement, right? We've been asking God to send us workers, to send us evangelists. And so today, International Women's Day, it is fitting for us to explore what all of that means for women. Because for centuries, there has just been a lot of controversy. There has been a lot of confusion about women's role in this kingdom movement. For example, take a look at this quote on the screen. Women, woman, is a temple built over a sewer, the gateway to the devil. Whoa, right? Woman, it was your fault that the son of God had to die. You should always go in mourning and in rags, can you guess what kind of person, what faith background would have said this? A Christian theologian, Tertullian from the second century, I don't know what happened to him in his life, but that's pretty significant there. Here's another one. Woman is not in the image of God, but as far as man concerned, he is by himself the image of God. Again, what kind of person might have said this? Believe it or not, another Christian theologian and philosopher, St. Augustine, you might have heard about him. You might have studied him in history class in the 5th century. He said this, and here's yet another. Women should stay at home. Keep house and bear children. And men, let me encourage you right now, do not be nodding. That is a very dangerous thing to do right now. This individual goes on to say, if a woman dies from childbearing, let her die. That whole Rocky reference, if she dies, she dies. That's all she's here for. What kind of individual would say this? German priest and Protestant reformer Martin Luther, 15th century. Come on. Oh, my goodness. This is confusing, isn't it? And then here's one more for good measure for you guys as we get going. Show me a church that allows women to pastor. And I'll show you a church that in a very short time leaves the gospel. Who might have said this when Might they have said this, what century? Believe it or not, just last month, February 2020, an American pastor, I'm not going to tell you who, I promise you it was not Pastor Doug, it was not (laughs) anybody here at City Tribe. Now, all of this, it's just super confusing, right? It's so conflicting, it's really controversial because these are theologians, Christian theologians, Christian philosophers, pastors, priests, not just from centuries past, but even today. 
right? It's super crazy. And they've all shaped how we view women's role in the kingdom movement. And so in a series about who's invited to participate, that everybody is invited to participate, it is necessary for us to ask the questions, well, what does Jesus teach about all of this? If it's his movement, if he's the king, well, what does the king have to say about women being evangelists? And what would he have to say to all of these theologians and all of these philosophers, these pastors and priests? And then what does it mean for all of us? Men, women, male, female. What does it mean for us today? Well, to answer those questions, we are going to hunker down in John's account about Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your digital Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. John chapter 4, the Gospel of John, the fourth section. John was one of Jesus' closest friends and followers. He had an eyewitness, an opportunity to witness everything firsthand for himself, all of the events that took place during Jesus' earthly ministry. And they had such a close relationship an intimate relationship that after Jesus had ascended into heaven, John took care of Mary, Jesus's mother. And so John, having traveled with Jesus and seeing all of these things firsthand in his perhaps final season of his life, he wrote down with a sense of urgency all that he had seen, all that he had witnessed himself. And he wanted everybody, all of his audience to believe He wanted them to believe in order that they would have a life characterized by rest and relief and feeling refreshed in their souls, not just now, in the here and now, but for all of eternity. And so here is where we pick up in John chapter 4 and John's account. Here's what had been going on. Jesus was headed north from an area called Judea, and it was the center of Jewish worship. And he was going to a region called Galilee. Now, the typical trek from Judea and Jerusalem north to Galilee was about a five-day walk along the eastern bank of the Jordan River. And I don't know how many of y'all have ever made this drive, but if you've ever driven from San Antonio to El Paso, it was a lot like that. Very boring, right? There was nothing scenic about this trek. There weren't a lot of food options. There was no Taco Cabana, nothing like that. And so here is what's fascinating about this five-day journey. Y'all know, what's the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. Right. Glad you guys paid attention in school. Shortest distance is a straight line. And there was a direct route from Jerusalem to Galilee that would have shaved off over 20 miles. Remember, they didn't have cars in that day. They walked everywhere. It would have shaved off over 20 miles and two traveling days, thus saving them a lot of energy, saving them a lot of resources, money and food. But not only that, if they would have gone through this straight line, they would have gone through lush, fertile lands with awesome weather, eclectic foods because it was so heavily populated. It was in all aspects the better route to take, yet no Jew would ever consider taking that route. They would have avoided it at all costs. Why? Now, the answer to that is very critical for the rest of our conversation. I'm about to unload on you guys a whole bunch of information, and I need you to stay with me. Y'all going to be able to stay with me? Yes? All right. So here we go. The most direct route It required that travelers pass through a region called Samaria. Now, Samaria was the center of Baal worship, Baal being the pagan god of fertility. 
pagans considered Baal even more powerful than the God of the Bible, the God that we believe in. They thus brutally killed, disemboweled anybody who worked for God who stepped foot in their region. Because Baal worship, it revolved around prostitution and self-inflicted harm and human sacrifice. Corruption and violence were rampant. The poor were victimized and oppressed. Jews thus saw Samaria as the embodiment of evil. And so there was no God-worshipping Jew that would go anywhere near that region. Y'all still with me? Yes? All right. We're going to keep going. If you get lost, just Google who were the Samaritans. Because Samaria, it was occupied by a people group known as the Samaritans. Samaritans were this mixed race that had resulted from Assyrians and Babylonians procreating with Jews. Many Jews, therefore, they viewed the Samaritans as this impure kind of mudblood, if you've ever seen Harry Potter. And they were the personification of sin. We studied sin last week, right? They missed the mark of perfection. They were imperfect. And one ancient document records that Jews, they viewed Samaritans as not even a people. They were lower than beasts. Meanwhile, Samaritans believed that they were the true bloodline of the one true king who would bring rest and relief and refreshed the world. And in fact, their name, it derives from the phrase keepers of the Torah. Samaritans means keepers of the Torah, keepers of God's law. And because of all of this, Jews and Samaritans, they had this long-running multi-generational beef to say that they hated each other would be an understatement. And so let's answer that question. Why would nobody take that simple, direct route? Jews chose the 20 plus miles along the Jordan River. They went the two unnecessary extra days just to shun Samaritans. It was one of the ways they viewed themselves as worshiping God. But as we've seen over the last two weeks in this series, Jesus was not at all concerned with continuing customs. Here is what John recorded. Now, it was necessary for Jesus to pass through Samaria. This phrase, it was necessary, it indicates that traveling this route was Jesus' binding duty. If he wanted to deny himself and be obedient to God the Father, then he had to go through Samaria his kingdom movement, for the sake of it, he had to. Y'all say, he had to. Great job. Well, as Jesus and his disciples, they trekked through this unfamiliar territory, Samaria. A few of them, they would have been amped with adrenaline, hoping that Jesus had to go and lay down the law, you know, with a little bit of grace and a little bit of truth. You know what I'm saying? They were ready to rumble. And then there were a select few that would have felt uneasy. Right there in an unfamiliar territory. It's kind of scary. I don't know what's going down. And so they would have hoped that whatever Jesus had to do, that it would have been off the beaten path and in the stealth of night. We don't want no trouble. We don't want to start nothing. Don't want nothing, right? But to both camps' disappointment, here's what happened next. John recorded this. He, Jesus, came to a city of Samaria called Sakar, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, Sakar was the Samaritan center of worship. It was what Jerusalem was to the Jews. And many Samaritans, they still worship there today. 
Sakar had the most fertile farms in all of the region and it had a water well that was so abundant it supplied several other towns that surrounded it. And because of all of this, Sakar was a major trade and commerce center and it was a strategic city for the Roman Empire. And this, this is where Jesus took his kingdom crew. He had to. And if being there in this unfamiliar territory, if it wasn't uncomfortable enough for them. They arrived at the sixth hour. Now, this isn't 6 a.m. our time. This isn't 6 p.m. our time. This is the sixth hour in the first century. It was the brightest time of day when the sun was at the highest and so much for going unnoticed, right? They would have stuck out like somebody in our world today who simply sneezes. You know what I mean? Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I got to keep my distance from this person. So why? Was it necessary? Why was it necessary for Jesus to pass through Sakar? You know, what did he have to do that he would put his apprentices, his disciples in such an uncomfortable situation? Well, here's what John recorded. And this is where our conversation really picks up today. Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. And there came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said, and I imagine it went a little something like this, hey, girl, give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman would have been a little bewildered, confused, looking around, like, dude, are you talking to me? Kind of like that John Travolta meme, you know what I mean? (laughs) She, therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? since I am a Samaritan woman. In other words, she was like, what in Sheol is happening right now? Right? She was flabbergasted. And ladies, you would have been too. Because of that multi-generational beef, this is likely the first time she had any kind of exchange with the Jew ever. And if she so happened to have had other encounters, well, they, for sure, they certainly weren't as inviting as her encounter with Jesus. Jews likely hurled racial slurs at her. They threw rocks at her. And the fact that she was a Samaritan, that's only scratching the surface as to why she was so shocked. See, the other reason was she was a woman. And being a woman in the first century, it sucked. Women were decidedly inferior to men. They were actually seen as burdens. In fact, when a baby girl was born into the family, the family mourned. And the father, he had every legal right to dispose of that baby girl so his family would not be burdened. Is that not crazy? You guys think that some of the quotes we read earlier were misogynistic. Well, Jewish men, they gave thanks daily, saying a prayer like this. This is an actual recorded prayer they would pray daily. Praise be to God that he has not created me a woman. And then rabbis, rabbis taught their apprentices, they taught their disciples that women are greedy at their food, eager to gossip, lazy, and jealous. A rabbi thus, he didn't dare speak to even his wife in public. It was one of their customs. It was one of the ways they worshiped God. And so it was absolutely unthinkable that a rabbi would sip from the same water pot as a Samaritan woman. It's why the Samaritan woman was so perplexed and so confused. And she said to Jesus, sir, you have nothing to draw with. 
Surely there is no way you're going to drink from my cup. What is going on here? And y'all, I cannot express to you just how monumental a moment in human history this exchange between Jesus and the Samaritan woman was. It was so monumental that Jesus' disciple John and all of the other disciples, they were in awe. They were taken aback. Actually, John recorded it this way, that they were amazed that he had been speaking to a woman. Who does that? Who is this man that he would engage with someone even lower than the beasts? You and I, we're 2,000 years down the road, thankfully. Our culture has come a long way, thankfully. Some would say maybe not too far. So let's just not gloss over what John recorded for us here. Let's not gloss over just how monumental a moment in human history this was. So for just a moment, consider yourself a first century individual. Travel back in time and think about this. Jesus, purposefully, he had to break tradition and he made an unprecedented trip to the embodiment of sin, Samaria where seemingly impure, imperfect, unclean, not even a people dwelled. And he didn't just go to rural Samaria. He went into the heart of the seemingly sinful place where the Samaritans worship. He went to Sakaar. And he didn't just scurry through Sakaar. Jesus, a Jew, he initiated a conversation with a Samaritan. Nobody would ever think to do that. But this individual wasn't just a Samaritan. She was a Samaritan woman, a decidedly inferior gender of that day. And this God-worshipping rabbi was willing to put his lips on and drink from the Samaritan woman's water pot. Unthinkable, unheard of, never before in human history had that Happened, And this, it wasn't about a civil rights movement. This, it wasn't about a women's rights movement. This was a glimpse, a beautiful picture of Jesus's kingdom movement. It was a picture of the kind of king that he is. A king that says, you're invited. Even you, people who have been devalued, who are seen as lower than the beast, you're invited to be a part of my kingdom. This is who John wanted you and I to believe in. I know some of y'all think you're too far gone to have an encounter with God. Right? But what John's account teaches us is that you're never too impure, you're never too imperfect, you're never too unclean for Jesus, for there is neither life nor death, neither powers and principalities, neither customs of oppression, there is neither height nor depth that can separate any single one of us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Can I get an amen up in here? Can I get a little praise? Here's what's even more monumental about this encounter. Respectable women, they drew water from the well in the cool of morning or in the cool of evening. The well was a place of encounter for water cooler talk. It was their time of day to engage in socializing and conversation. And every respectable woman during the day, she would be confined to her home. 
She was confined to her home during the day because if she was out and about, she was seen as neglecting her responsibilities, neglecting her role and her duties around the house. And if a respectable woman had actually left during the day, she would be vulnerable to sexual assault. And women who were out and about, well, at that time, they were seen as asking for it. And if they were out and about, they would have been seen as the ones at fault. They had no rights. And yet, this woman went to the well alone at the sixth hour, the hottest, brightest, driest time of day. And so the fact that she drew water alone at this hour, it tells us she was not a respectable woman. Why? Why would she risk being assaulted, going to the well all by herself at the sixth hour? You know, what in the Samaritan's woman's story makes her so unrespectable? Well, Jesus surfaced what could make her unrespectable. He suggests why. He said to her, you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. Here's my guess. My guess is whether or not you're familiar with the scriptures. My guess is whether or not you grew up attending church. You probably have some familiarity with this story of the woman at the well. Right? You've probably heard it in some form or fashion, a retelling of it. And my guess is if you've heard somebody teach on this, then you probably heard the talk that was framed around this woman's sin and her shame. Right? And then the woman in this story, she was probably portrayed as like a harlot or a floozy or a susia who was starved for sex with men, you know? Or maybe she was portrayed as a female who failed to keep her five marriages from falling apart. And maybe in some of those teachings you heard, ladies, you think a man's going to fulfill you, right? Or maybe you heard some of y'all be jumping from man to man wondering why your needs are never met, why you feel so empty and so thirsty. Anybody heard anything like that before with this story? Yes, a couple of people were raising their hands and folks nodding over here. Well, of course you did. Of course you heard it told that way because for so long in our history, it's always been the woman's fault. Right? I mean, you heard the quotes earlier, but is it possible? Is it possible that we have misunderstood? Is it possible that we've misinterpreted? Is it possible that we have misapplied the scriptures specifically in this story? For so long, throughout human history, women have not been permitted to be literate. It's only been within the last couple of centuries that women were permitted to learn to read and write. And I heard this before. I thought it was pretty profound. If the scriptures are God's love letters to us, then women, they haven't been able to read their own mail. Let that sink in for just a second. Is it possible that we have projected onto this story a little bit of patriarchy? Is it possible that we have not had a different perspective other than a male's perspective on it? Because if a Samaritan woman was in fact a susia who was starved for sex, John would have described her very distinctively. He would have used words like harlot and sinner, just like he used all throughout his other teachings, all throughout his other writings. And so the way that this woman has been portrayed all throughout the generations in sermons, it couldn't be further from the truth. 
You and I, we're not given the details as to why this woman had five different marriages, why they all ended, but we can be certain of this. None of it was her fault. Women had no rights. They couldn't initiate divorce if they wanted to. They couldn't even testify in court in the first century. Men, on the other hand, they could file divorce for virtually any reason. If I didn't like the way you cook, you're gone. And the woman wouldn't get any settlement. We don't know why her husbands rejected her. Maybe she outlived them. Maybe they died in war, died of disease. I had somebody share with me in one of the other services that perhaps she was infertile. And these guys just found out and they were like, nope, not going to waste my time. But here's what we do know. We do know that the Roman Empire required her, legally required her to get married within two years lest she be a burden on the economy. And so having five different husbands, it was not her choice. And I can absolutely assure you of this, that she was not a shameful susia, starved for sex with men because of what John recorded, because of Jesus's remark. The one whom you now have is not your husband. This suggests that she'd become a concubine, a sex slave. She needed to for her own survival. And I don't know if you've ever heard stories of women who have come out of that life, but it was not pleasurable. They did not enjoy it. It did not bring them joy, did not refresh their souls. So as a rejected, rightsless sex slave, no, she wasn't thirsty for men to fill her needs, to meet her needs. It was that the social structures, the cultural attitudes, even the religion of her day, it forced that life upon her. What choice did she have? And if that's not tragic enough, when her owner was ready for the new make and model, he would have tossed her out with yesterday's trash. She wouldn't have survived to see her 30th birthday as if she had anyone to celebrate with us, as if she had much to celebrate. Tertullian, that Christian theologian, he would have said, meh, she's just the gateway to the devil. What's the big deal? St. Augustine, he would have said, eh, she didn't bear God's image anyway. Wild the fuss. Martin Luther, he would have said, if she dies, she dies. Let her die. But Jesus, king and creator, I wonder his perspective on this matter. You know, I have to imagine that Jesus would have vividly recalled the intimate details of the conversation he had with the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, in which they said together, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let man alone reign. No, let them together reign. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed just the man. No, God blessed them, male and female. And he saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good together. It was very good. So surely Jesus' perspective, according to the scriptures, 
his own words, it would have been, you, you oppressed victim, you victim of cultural customs and misogynistic attitudes, you, bearer of my image, who has been made a beast, you are exactly why it was necessary to pass through Samaria. You see, a Samaritan woman, my image, it's male and female. And my kingdom, it can't be very good without you. And my movement, it doesn't move unless you participate in it. We've limped along without you, only one part of the image of God. And so you, you're invited. Though the world may devalue you, the world may toss you aside. In my kingdom, you have value. In my kingdom, you have a voice. In my kingdom, you have power and purpose. And so ladies, my sisters, my brothers, we have to get this. You have to get this. Regardless of what theologians and philosophers and modern pastors might have said and might say, you are very much created equally in the image of God and in his likeness. You are created to co-reign with man, with me, with your brothers. God blessed male and female and said, together, you and I are very good. And because Jesus knew that people And because Jesus knew that people would oppress you in his name, he had to pass through Samaria. He had to. So that John would record this monumental moment in human history that shocked the other disciples. He had to pass through Samaria to model for us what it looks like to come in the gender of power in that day. To show people what his movement is all about. What it means to participate in it. He had to pass through Samaria so that in the midst of oppressive attitudes, in the midst of these cultural customs, you and I would have no question. We would be absolutely sure that Jesus says to you, ladies, you're invited. You have a role in my kingdom. You have a significant role in my kingdom. You are one half of the image of God. You were created in my image just the same. So tell the woman closest to you, sister, you're invited. And just so you and I, male and female, every race, every generation, just so we are abundantly clear about the kind of movement that Jesus invites us to, so we are abundantly clear about the kind of king that he is, Jesus declared this powerful movement manifesto. He said to the Samaritan woman, an hour is coming. And now is, the time is now from this moment onward, I have declared that when the true worshipers will worship the Father, it will be in spirit and in truth. For such people, true worshipers, in spirit and in truth, are who the Father seeks to be his worshipers. This is who he wants participating in his kingdom. And they, and when Jesus repeats himself, you got to pay attention. He repeated himself right here. They must worship 
in spirit and truth. So let's break down what this means. True worship, participating in Jesus' kingdom movement, it wasn't about religious rules and rituals, performing any of that stuff. It wasn't about adopting theological systems and philosophies and ideologies that are man-made. It wasn't about preserving cultural customs and personal preferences. True worship, participating in the kingdom movement is characterized by spirit and truth. Spirit, acting on what Jesus has said, and truth, imitating what Jesus has done. Spirit, acting on what Jesus has said, and truth, imitating what Jesus has done. So to participate in the kingdom movement, the evangelists that we are seeking, the harvest gatherers, the harvest workers that we are seeking, true worshipers act on what Jesus has said and imitate what Jesus has done. So practically, how might you and I express our true Worship, how might we participate in the kingdom by acting on what Jesus has said and imitating what Jesus has done? Well, fellas, and first of all, shout out to y'all for staying this long instead of getting up and walking out. (laughs) Fellas, for us, it might look like this, acting on what Jesus said. God said, let them reign together. So let's you and I. Let's be intentional to invite women to the table at which we have a seat. Let's be intentional to invite them into the conversation, to ask questions and listen, really listen to their perspective, asking follow-up questions. And let's collaborate around their ideas. It doesn't just have to come from us. God said, let them reign. And then let's elevate the other half of God's image so that The kingdom of God doesn't limp along like it has for over 2,000 years. And then let's imitate what he has done. Jesus said it was necessary to go to Samaria. He had to. And so you and I, if we're going to imitate Jesus, it has to be necessary for us. We have to disrupt any misogynistic attitudes, any cultural customs that devalue our sisters. And instead, let's elevate and let's dignify in the same way Jesus did. Anybody listening? Anybody following here? Come on. Can I get an amen? So ladies... My sisters, for you, participating in Jesus' kingdom movement, acting on what he said, imitating what he has done, it might look like what the Samaritan woman did. When Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am the Messiah, I am that king that you have been waiting for. I am the one who has the power. I am the one who will bring rest and relief. The woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the people, come, See, a man who told me all these things that I have done, this is not the Christ, is it? He dignified me when nobody else would. She acted on what Jesus said. Despite having no rights, despite being seen as having no value, despite having no power in her day, she acted on what the king had said that he is the Messiah. He's the one with the power. She left her water pot and she told everybody about the Messiah who dignified her. And so, for you, maybe this means that you start reading the scriptures so you can learn for yourself what Jesus has said. And maybe it's starting a tribe. 
so that you can discuss his teachings and broaden a perspective. Maybe it's accepting, finally accepting the truth that you too were equally created in God's image and living and operating from that truth. You city youth, you need to get that as well. Can you imagine starting at this age with that truth, operating from that, saying, you know what? I am no longer going to denounce myself. I'm not going to speak negatively of me. I'm going to dignify myself. Maybe for some of you, that means standing up to when somebody is doing that. I'm not going to let you talk to me like that. I was created in the image of God. And she imitated what Jesus had done. Just like Jesus who disregarded the cultural customs of that day. She disregarded those customs and she boldly invited everyone to learn about the king. And maybe for you, it's taking the bold step of inviting friends and family to come and learn what Jesus has done in your life. Maybe it's applying among the droves of men to attend seminary and study the scriptures and give us a fuller perspective so that we don't limp along with just one side of things. Maybe it's signing up to serve on a ministry team here at City Tribe. Maybe for you, it's finally writing that blog post, finally writing that sermon and preparing to preach it. Regardless, regardless of what that looks like, ladies, my sisters, Jesus' movement needs you to rise up and participate lest we continue to limp along. And that's what I'm inviting all of us to start doing today, International Women's Day 2020. Let us be a people, a tribe, who aren't committed to theologians' perspectives or philosophical perspectives or certain ideologies and customs of our day. But let's be a people, a tribe of true worshipers who participate in Jesus' kingdom movement with spirit and truth, who act on what he has said and who imitate what he has done, elevating women, elevating the other half of the image of God that we might experience the kingdom movement in a way that we have not yet experienced it. And check what happens. Check what happens when we imitate Jesus and elevate women and women rise up and they participate to act on what Jesus said and imitate what he has done. John recorded this from that city, from Sakar, many of the Samaritans who were once seen as lower than beasts, not even a people. They believed in who? Jesus, the King, because of the word of who? The woman who had no value, no dignity, no power, no voice. She was unrespectable because of her who testified. An entire city was transformed because one woman rose up, decided to participate and evangelized. And it wasn't just a city that was transformed. Remember, it was a strategic city for the Roman Empire. And so she transformed generations in that city. She transformed 
the entire Roman Empire paved the way for the gospel to spread. You and I today are a product of this woman rising up and participating in the kingdom by acting on what Jesus has said and imitating what Jesus has done. What would happen if you did that? What would happen if you did that? And you know what? This wasn't the exception. This was the norm. In her book, Better Together, Danielle Strickland, a pastor, she reports that when women rise up, when they participate, they help create companies that are more financially stable and often have like a 50% return on equity. When women rise up, when they participate, when they engage, they create physically and emotionally healthier societies, healthier cultures. When women rise up and participate, when they co-reign in governments, it reduces crime, it reduces corruption significantly. And when women participate, when they rise up, when we collaborate, when we do this together, the image of God together, the possibility of negotiating peace during wartime, it increases by 30%. And Lima Bowie substantiates all of these claims. Throughout the 1990s, Liberia was in the midst of a civil war that seemed to have no end in sight. It lasted about 15 years. Under their harsh dictator, Charles Taylor, boys were taken as soldiers, given guns, and expected to fight one another and kill each other. Girls, they were raped and they were murdered. It sounded a lot like Samaria in the first century, but this was the 20th century. And so fed up with seeing children in the image of God being senselessly killed, Lama Bowie rose up. She acted on what Jesus had taught. She imitated what Jesus did. And she invited mothers of all religions, of all faiths, even Muslims, people who didn't believe the same things that she believed. She invited mothers to participate in a nonviolent movement characterized by public prayer and peaceful presence. And then she boldly testified. She boldly testified to a better future, painting this picture, casting a vision, demanding rest and relief for her people, fellow Liberians. And her efforts worked. In 2003, the tyrannical leader, he fled into exile. The civil war ended and it paved the way for Africa's first ever female head of state, their first ever president. Now her movement wasn't a civil rights movement, wasn't a children's rights movement, it wasn't a women's rights movement. Was ultimately a kingdom movement and it proved why Jesus had to go to Samaria you are why Jesus had to go to Sakar. what would happen if we together rose up if we dignified our sisters if we elevated the other half of the image of God, I mean, the kingdom of God, the movement, 
kingdom movement had limped along for 2,000 years and nothing is gonna stop it. And we've accomplished so much. But what happens when the other half of the image of God participates? How much further can we advance the kingdom of God? How much more impactful? How many more people will experience rest and relief? How many more people will be introduced to the king and have their eternities, the trajectory changed forever? And so sisters, you're invited. Come on. You're invited to participate. You have a significant role. You have a voice. You have value. You have power. You have to rise up. You have to participate. So let me leave you all with this question, male, female, every race, every generation. What would it look like for you to be a true worshiper? What would it look like for you to participate in this kingdom movement by acting on what Jesus has said and imitating what Jesus has done? What would it look like for you, starting today, International Women's Day 2020, to start to rise up and elevate? No, you can't see it on the podcast. I'm not sure if you can see it watching online, but everybody in the Cameo Theater is standing, signifying they're gonna rise up, live as true worshipers in spirit and in truth. Imitating what Jesus has done, acting on what Jesus has said. And let me tell y'all, this is why he had to. It was necessary to go to Sakar because we are better together. And so if you are gonna say, you know what, as best as I can with the help of the Holy Spirit, I do want to commit to living with spirit and truth, participating in the kingdom movement with spirit and truth. Would you just raise your hand and keep it up? Shoot us a text if you're listening from the podcast. Send us a message if you're listening online. And I'm going to pray over all of us right now. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for John and his account of this monumental moment in human history that sets the example for all of us. Thank you that you sent Jesus in the gender of power in that day to set for us the example of what it means to have power, of what it means to participate in the kingdom movement. Thanks for giving us a glimpse of who this king is that not only invites, but dignifies and elevates. So God, you see our hands up. We want to be true worshipers. We want to be evangelists, harvest workers, gatherers of your harvest that operate in spirit and in truth. Help us act on what Jesus said. Help us imitate what Jesus has done that we together would advance your kingdom movement 
that it would no longer limp along. In Jesus' name, and everyone who agreed said, Amen. Y'all can go ahead. We're glad you're a part of the tribe today. To further connect with us, check citytribe.church.